Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, my guest is Ravi Rothenberg. Ravi is a transformational coach, embodiment facilitator, and trauma-aware space holder. He's the author of the new book, Ready to Rise, How to Find Your Path to Peace and Purpose. His purpose is deeply rooted in sharing the heart-centric healing wisdom he's learned through yoga, the union of his immersion in Eastern traditions, and an adventurous journey of personal evolution. On his path, he finds himself most at peace on his yoga mat, immersed in nature, exploring foreign lands, or writing in the early and wee hours of the morning. He enjoys spending quality time around Colorado with his partner, his pup, and his conscious community. And like all of us, he is many things, a son, a brother, a lover, a friend, a writer, an explorer, a mover, and a shaker. In this conversation, we spend a lot of time going into his journey and how he ended up writing his book, Ready to Rise, How to Find Your Path to Peace and Purpose. And there is a lot that went into this, but one of the triggering events that sent Ravi onto his deep spiritual journey was that he was let go from a job that he was really good at, that was paying well, and that he really enjoyed doing. And uh, he ended up splitting in a partnership that he was in, and a lot of things in his life just seemed to be going the quote-unquote wrong way. And instead of just jumping into the next thing in his life, he actually took the invitation to slow down and start to question, what do I really want in my life? Am I living an aligned life? And you could see from here, he started to really be guided by intuition and to just follow what his curiosities were. And so a better part of the past three years or so, Ravi spent in India and in Thailand and in eastern parts of the world where he was able to connect more with his own intuition, his own body. And there are lots of different um, amazing spiritual teachers that he talks about and shares their wisdom around. He, in his current coaching practice, does a lot of work around the nervous system as well. And he speaks really eloquently in this conversation too how to regulate the nervous system and what are the different types of people and personalities. And, you know, we're not all the same exact type of person. We all have different tools and different things that are supportive for us. Ravi's journey is a really inspirational one. And I think that you're going to get a lot out of this. With all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Ravi has for us today. Ravi, happy book launch day and welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend. Mike, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, truly. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember, I don't know, probably a year or so ago that this was in its very preliminary stages. You you had the book kind of dialed in internally. You knew that it was a project that 
you wanted to move towards. And man, it, it's an honor to, to play a, a part in helping you get the word out there. And it's also, I'm, I'm proud of you as a, a peer and friend that you had the vision and you followed through on it and, uh, and the day is here. So it's, it's really a testament to uh, your prowess as a visionary and also as a creative and a writer. And I just mm. want to take this moment to honor that. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I will, I will take that in. I will receive that. It's uh, yeah, truly, especially in a day like today when we're so distracted myself included and sometimes especially me to actually see something through all the way to the finish line is it feels like unheard of. Um, and for me, it's, it means a lot to, to be here at this day. Yeah. Well, I, I can't wait to unpack more about the book and, and more about you. And as someone who's listened to a couple, at least a couple of episodes of my show, you, you might know where every conversation starts. And I, I, I want to know what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up. Mm. I love that question. I love listening to other people's answers. And even right now, I just kind of well up with, yeah, I guess emotion around those memories. You know, it just takes you back to such a, a memorable place, um, memorable, positive or negative. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, yeah, so the dinner table, mm, I have two younger sisters uh, and we're all about two years apart. So there was definitely a time where my mom had three children under the age of, of six and yeah, not a ton of support from like outside family or community. Um, even my dad, I, I love him dearly, but you know, he's not the guy who's making, making dinner while his wife is taking care of three little ones. And so some of my favorite memories are, are just those meals where we did come together. Cause I, I don't think there were so many when we were all around the dinner table. I also, I grew up culturally Jewish um, as a few of your guests uh, have. And um, there was a period where my mom was really committed to doing Friday night Shabbat. Uh, and that felt really holy and beautiful candles and challah, and just a really like festive meal. Again, more of the cultural side of Shabbat not so religious, but still saying, you know, some of the opening prayers and just, yeah, being there in, in that ceremony. But oftentimes too, I have memories of, of, yeah, the dinner table being a place where, you know, my parents would end up getting in a huge fight. Mm -hmm. And I have a memory of my, my mom throwing a plate uh, at my dad or, you know, myself or my younger sisters crying. And yeah, so it was definitely a place where we could come together there was also those moments where, yeah, they'd ask, like, you know, how was your day? And things like that. Uh, the classic classic dinner dialogue. But overwhelmingly, yeah, I don't think we had a consistent sit around the dinner table ritual. And so the memories that I do have from the times where we were around the table are, are mostly sweet. Did you have places that you felt completely safe, like? The, the best version of Ravi was able to show up and, and be seen for who you were as a, as a child or yeah, as a child. Yeah. Yeah. So I was the firstborn son. Um, and so I, I did, I got so much love as a kid from, again, my parents, from family that were around. And so I, I, I definitely felt privileged and safe in my earliest years 
But then again, yeah, as things started to get a little bit more stressful around the house, and I'm happy to share a bit more about the dynamics of my parents because it really did play into what was happening in the environment of our house. And so pretty quickly, actually, my, my safe place was, was outside of the house on the soccer field. Um, I started playing soccer when I was like four um, and that was a consistent outlet for me to like be expressed, to release energy, to be in a like safe team dynamic. Um, I had great coaches when I was young and I, yeah, I really excelled in that space and I am sure that it felt like a safe haven. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, how would you describe yourself <clears throat> as a kid and, and what were your, do you, remember like what your aspirations were and what your vision was for as as you grew up and went to college like did it matter to do something that mattered to you or was the goal mostly informed by the conditioning of your environment mm. yeah great question yeah as a kid i was um, yeah really outgoing really friendly um i had yeah tons of again, outlets for like social connection, whether that was through like the temple or sports or at school. And even in the neighborhood, we had like 10 kids on, around the same age. And so my, my favorite memories of childhood are like those, you know, evenings playing um, kick the can or capture the flag or pick up football or soccer. Like it truly had that neighborhood where I could be out and about until the street lights came on and it was time for dinner. So that definitely like that sense of adventure and play uh, really shaped a lot of me. And then even I was always a really drawn to writing and expressing myself in third grade, we had to write uh, our personal autobiography. And even yeah, as an eight-year-old uh, in my autobiography, I wrote that I want to go to law school at UCLA. I want to get a green Mercedes. Um, I want to have a family and a dog. So like, I don't know where that's coming from, right? Like eight-year-old me wanted UCLA. I think I know where that comes from. My dad's a big basketball fan and he wears a lot of like UCLA gear, which we live in, you know, Wisconsin and don't have much of a connection to Southern California, but somehow that seed was planted. And then similarly, law school was, that probably comes from a conditioning of just like, my dad was not a lawyer, but a lot of my friends' fathers were lawyers. And a lot of my friends have followed their father's footsteps in becoming lawyers. So yeah, little eight-year-old me had that vision for myself. But uh, I wasn't. I wouldn't. I wasn't so dogmatic or like rigid around following that. Although that that was that that subconscious uh, memory of writing that was definitely alive for me as I was in college and not really sure what I wanted to do. I was like, oh, maybe I go to law school. Um, I took one, you know, law class in my undergrad and actually I really excelled at it, but there was something about, yeah, probably the conditioning of like, actually there was one conversation. My, my dad would play cards on Sunday morning. He's a big gambler and he plays cards with like these older, mostly Jewish guys. And I have one very vivid memory of one of them telling me like, or asking me, what do you want to be when you're out of college, when you grow up? And I was like, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school. And he stopped me in my tracks and he said, and he was a lawyer himself. And he said, you know, I can see you've got, you've got bright eyes and an adventurous spirit. The world does not need another Jewish lawyer. Mm. <laughs> and 
And yeah, that really stuck too. It was like just as strong as the conditioning to pursue that path, that equal and opposite recommendation from someone who had realized that in his own life saying, nah, you don't want that. That you have, you have an, a spirit and a soul. Don't do that. <laughs> and that was enough to like kind of deter me from really pursuing that. Uh, a, a cautionary word of advice from one of the many Jewish lawyers in the world. Uh, not, not the first person that I've heard advice like that from, but mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I'm wondering, I mean, I've heard you talk about your story several times, but uh, I'm wondering as you were fast forwarding through a lot of your journey, obviously, but sure. as you matured into college age and were really actually moving towards what, what do I want to do with my professional life? And there's probably more in there too. Like what kind of romantic partner do I want to be? I mean, these are all mm -hmm. questions I know that you really are sitting with now. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what was, how were you moving through your life when you were say in college and in your early twenties? Yeah, another good question. You know, I think I was really, and maybe this is a theme that has stuck with me since I was young, through college, through work life up until now, is that I was really following breadcrumbs on, on the path. I, I would pay attention and still do to what's showing up, who I'm meeting. I really like to look at my life as being this like series of intersections, the intersection of where I am personally and in a work case, like where I am professionally. And, you know, I'm really finding opportunities that are meeting me at that intersection because my, my personality, like I need to be able to bring that to the workplace. And in fact, I, and in the book, I talk about this. I had, I worked in a job that was aligned with what I studied. I worked, I had a dream job, right? From an outsider's perspective, I had a dream job and I had my dream job, truly the work that felt like it was this perfectly aligned manifestation of how I could show up fully and be um, in a professional setting. So I had all three of the, I've experienced all three of those. And at the end of the day, I realized and found that none of those are the most full, most expressed and aligned version of, of myself. And so now that I'm in a place of really creating and, um, and realizing this, this part of me, now I, I've, finally feel like, okay, this is what I could do for a long time. Yeah. So what I'm hearing, a, a lot of people would call this the many things, but like one version is the golden handcuffs. Uh, one is there's the, like, there's something missing component of it. Like everything, mm -hmm. all the boxes are being checked and I, and I really outwardly love this job, but there's something missing. And I, I certainly experience you now to be someone who is plugged into your own intuition and your own deep sense of inner knowing. Mm. And I know that that's not really necessarily what got you here. There, there's lots of other stuff mixed that, that's in the mix. And I, yeah. I would love to hear like what propelled you, like the, all the boxes are being checked and you're really doing work that you like doing. Yeah. Like what, what happened that, cause the shift of I'm going to, this, this actually isn't complete. There's something more out there. Yeah. I think the major catalyst to my, my shifting and my really committing to this journey inward was being fired from my dream job. I've been doing the work for almost three years. I was really, again, just such in a place 
within my community, within this global community that I was a part of, I felt like I was such a staple. Um, and then that was taken from me uh, from some factor, some force outside of my control. And that just rocked me to my core. And, and I really, again, with the experience I had with the network, I could have jumped into the next thing immediately working for a well-funded startup or going into another like entrepreneur support organization. Like I had the, the, um, the cred and the connections to, to do that quickly, but I really, I was so rocked. And I think there was a lot of, maybe what I don't really talk about so much is even there was a lot of shame uh, and guilt around losing that job. I, I really wanted to embrace transition. And I said that aloud to myself. I said that to my partner at the time that I really, that was my commitment. Even when so many people were reaching out saying, hey, I heard what happened. I'm so sorry. Like, don't worry. We'll get the next thing so fast. And that's just the conditioning of like, okay, you lost a job. Now you need to go get one immediately. But for the first time, I really wanted to give myself permission to embrace transition and and yeah, for maybe the first time in the, maybe ever to truly listen to my intuition. Like you said, that inner knowledge, that inner knowing that when we're in the rat race or working or busy, distracted, it's not so accessible. I'm guessing that there weren't a whole lot of people who were supportive of you taking your time, taking a break, embracing the transition. And I don't want to. It, it could be easy to just gloss over and just talk about like, where's Ravi today? But I, I love talking about these moments of transition because they're really pivotal points. And yeah. it, I'm sure you built a lot of trust with yourself in being able to listen to your inner voice and not all the other voices of the people around you. And, and I just want to really like zoom in on what, what that looked mm. like. Like, were yeah. there other really important people in your life who were really advising against this and, what did, what did your own inner voice sound like, feel like, look like? Mm. The person that matters maybe the most to me on this planet is my maternal grandfather. So my mom's dad. He, I have some of my earliest memories as a child are with him. And to this day, we've remained really close. And... I remember vividly that I wanted, there was so much happening for me. I had, I did, I lost my job. I chose to leave the relationship that I was in and I was planning my trip to India. And I called my grandpa and I wanted to share all these things with him personally. So he wasn't hearing it from the grapevine or from my mom or someone else. He's going to hear it from me. And I shared this with him in one conversation that all three of these things are happening. And his response was, can you get your job back? Can you get your girlfriend back? And can you cancel your trip to India? Right? That was his reaction. And if I wasn't so solid in myself and knowing that actually, no, this is the path that I'm embarking on, um, I, I maybe would have said, you know, that, that's a good point, Grandpa. Maybe I can get my girlfriend back. Maybe I will get another job quickly. And I, I don't need to go to India right now. But instead, I said, I said the opposite. I said my truth. And yeah, the, the critic and the conditioned part of him is what he reacted with. But then once I was so solid in my decision, he actually sat back 
And he was like, wow. And he did his own reflecting and he said, I understand. And actually, I'm so proud of you because I didn't have the chance to do that. You know, I was 20 and I came out of the army and I, everyone was telling me I needed to get married and buy a house and have kids and these things. And, and so that's what he did. He didn't give himself the permission to explore. And um, it was really cool actually to connect with him on that level and just the juxtaposition of going from these like something that for him is like the most terrifying thing that his grandson is taking this unconventional path. But then the ability to connect to that on the other side was, was really sweet. Mm. It's, a, it's a really powerful moment that you had there. And yeah, I'm, I'm also finding myself wondering if we really continue to place ourselves in like where, where Ravi's at in his life. Were you already at that point reading other personal development books? Were you surrounded by any people at all who had gone down this path? Or was it simply just you were answering some call within you and mm. you, had, you just had that much self-trust that you said, I don't know, I, I'm going to go ahead and do this thing? Yeah, at that point, so my name, my born name is Jordan. So in that moment where I'm calling my grandpa and doing all these things, I'm still very much Jordan. I, again, breadcrumbs are showing up on, on my journey. Like by that point, I had been in therapy as an individual, not like regularly for years, but enough times that I knew that I had an outlet for healing and support when I was feeling overwhelmed. Um, I had been going to some um, Al-Anon meetings. Um, I had been in couples therapy. I had been reading. I read The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, which was like felt like a Bible at the time. And, and I would say I'd been a few years into my own personal yoga practice. Um, so I had been encountering people in that community that were walking a path that wasn't so familiar to me. So that there were enough things within my being and that I had experienced directly that were enabling more broad crumbs to show up on this other path. Thanks for that context and color. That, that does make a, a big difference. And so now I'm, I'm finding myself really curious. This is the natural catalyst in your life was you got fired from your job and it, it forced you inwards. And, and now I want to know what were you moving towards? What was... What did you feel was waiting in India for you? And what were you mm. seeking there? Mm. So when I was considering, when I knew at the core of my being, I wanted to go abroad and do like a yoga teacher training. I wanted to be immersed in this, mostly as a really, because I wanted to be consistent. I wanted to give myself the gift of like 30 days of discipline and practice and clean environment and spiritual just depth. And I was searching all over the world at first. I was looking at programs in Costa Rica, and Bali, and Nicaragua. There's so much out there. And then I found India. And I'm reading these descriptions of the programs, and they are just so much different than anything I'm reading elsewhere. And there was one program that in the description of the program, it said they had emotional release treatments. And for whatever reason, that was the thing that I was like, ooh, yeah, I feel like I need that. Like, I feel like I have this emotional burden that I don't know what to do with. Yeah, like really just 
feeling and releasing in my journey up until then, you know, even yoga, there's like an opening and like, it's safer to be in my body and to be stretching and strengthening, but to go to that layer of like emotional release, um, I didn't have any outlets for that. Uh, and so that was what drew me to this one specific program that I chose. And in many ways, I would say that that has been the biggest catalyst to the journey that has unfolded beyond the trip to India. And that was what, two, two or three years ago now? Uh, yeah, that was uh, over three years ago. Over three mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. I've heard you speak to some of the powerful experiences that you've had since you were let go from your job. I would love to hear from them. I, I could prompt you with a couple that you've spoken about, but I would love to hear from you. What were two or three big experiences that you went through that were kind of paradigm shifting for mm -hmm. you and, and helped open you up in the way that it seems like you were seeking like a, emotional release is a, it's an evocative phrase. And a, I'm sure mm -hmm. that when you went there, you were, you were looking to be opened up. So what were some of the ways that you were opened up? Yeah. Well, I can feel it even in my body. Like my, my, the crown of my head is buzzing right now, just going back to that memory. Because they were things that I could have never dreamed of, that this is how we'd be releasing. But again, the environment that I was in was so conducive to being stretched and put into a very uncomfortable place. And the first one was, was an Osho dynamic meditation. And a dynamic meditation is a one hour process. There are five stages. And actually, I explain Osho dynamic meditation in the book because it was so, so critical in my opening. Um, but essentially, long story short, for one hour, you are, uh, you have, you're either blindfolded or have your eyes closed. You're in a gr group setting, but ideally a safely held container. And there's a soundtrack that takes you through this hour long journey. And in the first stage, you are breathing chaotically and intensely only out of your nose for 10 minutes. And it kind of looks and sounds like this. Hopefully that comes through on the audio. So 10 minutes of that, while this music is booming, eyes are closed. The next 10 minutes, you are in full catharsis or conscious madness. You're fully expressing whatever emotion is alive in you. Oftentimes it's anger, sadness, rage, that's most repressed or built up. So that's what comes through first, but it can also be joy, uh, ecstasy, sensuality, uh, just love, like whatever, but you are catharting, you are allowing it to move through you. Mm -hmm. The third stage, the music shifts and you place your hands above your head and you're jumping up and down so that your heels are really pounding into the ground. And that force comes up into your pelvis and you're simultaneously bellowing a Sufi mantra, who, H-O-O, who, 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 as you're jumping and bellowing and whoing for another 10 minutes. So for 30 minutes, you've been breathing, catharting and whoing. And then the fourth stage is stillness and silence. And the music cuts out and you stand there completely still and you're feeling all of this energy moving. 
you're sweating, you're breathing, and you're just tuning into your own witness consciousness, being the observer of your own experience. And that's 15 minutes. And just, again, everything is moving within you. I talk about it in the book. It's like a locomotive train was going 100 miles an hour and then came to a complete stop. Right? So, so much is being stirred. And then in the fifth stage, the music comes back on. And the fifth stage is celebration. And again, at your own pace, you're just coming back to life, celebrating, dancing, moving, and honoring this journey that you just went through. And it can feel like total bliss. Um, it can also feel like resistance. Like, uh, And I've done dynamic meditation enough to know that every time is so different. And that going through that process for the first time, I, I came out, out of that just beaming but then hours later i was i felt wrecked my i was my whole body was sore i felt like i was hit by a bus or ran like consecutive marathons um, i could barely move when i woke up the next day and i knew exactly why because I, I also had the capacity to go very full power to really tap into something deeper uh, and so yeah i was wrecked but also released and i'll pause for a moment but then i have a, a story that connects well with that that's worth worth sharing mm -hmm. yeah it's so i would love to hear the story and i just want to take the listener who's who's not going to be able to see the video of the especially for step one the the breathing so i just want to like briefly describe that and and zoom in a little bit on each of the steps especially step one and two so with the rapid fire breathing, I don't know if that's exactly how you described it, but I want you as a listener to picture like every fiber of your face is like scrunched because of the effort that it takes to breathe that rapidly. And to and then imagine doing that for, for 10 minutes. That is energetically like that. That is very taxing. So yeah. uh, if you can just imagine like your face is scrunched that fat, like that hard and you're breathing that fast, how much, and then you still have 50 minutes left. Step two is whatever feeling is present for you, really letting it out. So like, one of my follow-up questions, the, the thing that popped up for me, which I imagine if I did an Osho dynamic meditation, it would probably be anger because that's the emotion I've resisted the most historically in my life. Would that mean that I am, am I just like screaming with all of my, like, am I really just moving anger through me in a way that's like, let's just release all of this in the most aggressive way possible? Yeah. Okay. If it's the aggression that needs to come through, you allow that. Um, if, if you have a good setup, you may have a pillow next to you that you can either hit aggressively or some people like to scream into a pillow. Um, but most of the containers that I've been in with Osho Dynamic, you have full permission to scream out loud, unfiltered. And this is also a really critical point, too, is that if you're in the room and you are not allowing yourself to fully express, then you are taking on the expression of others. And that in itself is maddening. And so it is very important that even if you have to fake it in the beginning, that you allow something to come through so that you don't get the bombarded by what's happening around you. 
I think the other three parts of it were pretty clear, but let's just run the listener through again. So step three, you're, you kind of have your hands, your fists in the air, your hands in the air, and you're just mm-hmm. jumping up and down intentionally with your heels hitting the ground pretty hard going. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. And I'm imagining that you're pretty gassed after that. So that's the 30 minutes of you really moving your body through some pretty rigorous exercise in, in different forms. Yeah. What was the stillness in step four like for you? What what was what was coming up for you? And that it could be pretty gnarly just sitting down to be still without doing all of that pre work. So what was it like in that moment? It's the ultimate. It's the ultimate stillness because of how much momentum and movement you've committed to leading up to that. And so yeah, like it is. You're feeling if you're. I'm already a highly sensitive being, and like I can. Yeah, I do. I feel energy. And so, but this is like a rush and a swelling of energy. Every, you know, it feels like electricity throughout my being. The visuals for me are often, again, eyes are closed. And so usually if you just close your eyes without all that movement, you see maybe black or, you know, some light moving. But this truly like vibrant, brilliant purples and blues and, you know, if you're willing to subscribe to what the, you know, the, the chakras represent, but that is like your, your crown and your higher, your higher self, your higher chakras are very activated. And so there is this inner symphony of, of color and, and movement that, that you're really just sitting with and observing. Beautiful. Well, I, I would love to hear you pick back up with the story that you, that you paused to let me interject for yeah. uh, what so what was the story that was coming up for you so and i'll rewind just a little bit even in the first few days of this yoga immersion my my teacher this kind of middle-aged indian man he looked at me and he said very bluntly he said you're a, you're a sad person you carry a lot of sadness in your in your eyes <laughs> and i was like who says that um and but in that moment instead of resisting it or fighting it i I kind of was taken aback but i said "Ah, you're right you're all right i feel it i feel the weight of it when i if i truly look at myself in the mirror i see it and but even him saying that was like the seed was planted that i was going to move through that sadness because i even had this story of like i have all this sadness but i don't know how to feel it like if something happened, if, you know, somebody I care about passed away or something, like, I don't know if I'd be brought to tears. And that really scared me. And so the day after doing this dynamic meditation, again, my body, my energy was wrecked. And for whatever reason, I checked my email that day. I was not checking my phone so often, but I went and I checked my email and I had this really long email and I start reading the first few lines, and I immediately know what I'm reading. And it was an email from this woman who was writing to me to tell me that her son uh, had taken his life. And I worked with him on a project that when I was in my dream job, I had a chance to kind of mentor and bring in this um, high school student. And he did his senior project around the nature of the work that I was doing. And we were able to collaborate in a really meaningful way. And she was sharing that in his freshman year of college, he was having such a hard time that it was too much for him. And he, he took his own life. And as even again, it's 
five paragraph email, I'm a sentence or two in and I know what I'm about to read. And I feel so much, I'm feeling all of this well of emotion coming up through me. And I set down my phone, I ran to the, my Indian teacher, the same guy who had said, you have the sadness uh, within you. And I try, I'm trying to, I'm fumbling across my words and I'm saying like, ah, this, I, I just got this news and I, I'm feeling a lot, like what, what do I do? And he knew what was happening. And um, fortunately it was, he was outside sitting on a chair under a tree uh, as, as one does. And he just pointed at the ground and he said, lie down. Two words. He just pointed and said, lie down. And that was enough. I lied down on the ground just a few feet away from him, a tree above me and some sun kind of coming through. And I was hysterical. I, for the first time, maybe in my lifetime, I experienced what it meant for an emotion to be energy in motion, to really move through me. And for truly, for maybe 45 minutes, I was sobbing uncontrollably uh, with like the grass and the earth holding me and the sun and the elements kind of coming down on me. And I had, I was, I was in my own catharsis. I was sobbing and then I was like laughing like a crazy person. And it was just this full spectrum of emotional release. And truly, I mean, even though it was this deeply, deeply uh, sad moment, it brought me to such bliss and clarity and opening on the other side of that. Um, but it was only because I, my channel was open enough that that emotion could really move through me in a way that uh, I wouldn't have been able to process otherwise. Mm. Well, I would love to hear, this is kind of a two-parter, if, if there's anything else that you feel compelled to share with regards to experiences that opened you up. And if not, I would love to hear what started to come online other than I'm hearing you had your channel was open, your ability to feel was just way more present than it had ever been in your entire life. So what what became available to you in terms of uh, where you, you're open to receiving different messages about where you want to go with your life? And yeah, like, yeah what, what started happening in your life as a result of opening yourself up? Mm hmm deeper layers of opening, right? Feel, being able to feel an emotion was just the surface because also, again, in this yoga program, we would go on to do more intense breath work. I did a like two hour holotropic breathing. And the end of that had me in a state where, yeah, the, the information and the wisdom that was coming through was just so, so clear. And a big part of that was, you know, I used to drive, fast cars and uh, hurl myself down the mountain on a snowboard at 60 miles an hour. And I was definitely drawn to the extremes. But in those moments, what I came to learn is that I was just trying to feel, I wanted to really feel this existence. And maybe in those ways, I was doing it unconsciously. But through things like holotropic breath work and Osho dynamic meditation, now I'm consciously choosing to enter into a state of intense feeling. And that was so clear to me that, wow, I can, I can cultivate this level of, of intensity through my breath and through being present and conscious for these experiences. I don't, yes, I can choose to go 
drive around a racetrack or go, you know, extreme skiing or snowboarding, but I don't need to. I can access that place from my own will. And when I'm there for it, when I'm conscious for it, then there's so much more wisdom coming through me. It's almost like a, you know, end of life, your life is flashing before you. Similarly, all these moments and injuries and traumas and all the things just come flooding through and I can witness them. And then I can grab my pen and journal about them afterwards and really capture those, uh, those downloads, if you will. And then it's like, oh, now I want more of that. Right. But also knowing that like, okay, these are, this is not sustainable, right? I'm not going to be able to do this breath work daily or even weekly. It's something that when I need it, when I'm ready to access it, I know how to go to that place. And that's just, again, deeper opening more layers um, and realizing how multidimensional I am, not just, I had this story that I was just like an average, you know, white guy, white Jewish guy with like, you know, a degree in journalism and business and some work experience. And that's all that I was. Uh, But I really got to peek under the hood and see, wow, there's so much more happening within me. That resonates deeply with me, man. And it, with regards to the breath work and just opening yourself to feeling and really what I'm hearing is you're, you started to get a full download on what it means to be alive and how epic that is in every moment, whether it's the blissful joy or just opening yourself to pain. There's a way that you start to realize like both of those are what it really means to be fully alive. It's all of that. And yeah, Wim Hof calls it getting high on your own supply. And I, yeah. I love calling it that because whether it's with our breath or just paying attention to what's going on in our inner world, we have access to so much aliveness that we don't need to externalize through snowboarding, through thrill seeking. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but uh, doing them from a place of, yeah, I can get everything I need inside of me is, uh, is a whole new ballgame. And I, I haven't gone to India and gone through that exact type of experience, but it, it really resonates what you're sharing with me. And to that end, I I would love to hear you, you kind of touch on this a little bit, like these immersive experiences are beautiful. They can really open us up. And I, I hear people talk about plant medicine and psychedelic experiences in similar ways where. The, the insights start to hit in ways that never happened, like the speed of which they're happening and the depth of which they're happening. Mm-hmm. It's just, it feels like it's all at once in, in a way that maybe it was never even happening at all before. What was it like to then integrate this into a life where you said, you know, but maybe I'm going back into a more ordinary day to day or did that not even happen? Did, was this just like, you know what, I am, <laughs> this is just the way of life. And I'm going to, I don't know, be a, a yoga teacher who lives in the mountains. And, and that was my biggest question, you know, in the final days of my, my yoga immersion, I was like, so how do I go back after this? Um, I feel like I'm meant to go live, yeah, in a cave or like be in this really austere uh, existence. And that's where things start to get interesting too. I, um, I did see myself now as like this awakened yogi with my own like superpowers. And I'm just going to keep 
keep riding this wave. And that did, that took me into a 10 day silent meditation retreat. It took me into a five day uh, Osho intensive. Um, and all these things kept just showing me again, more layers, more depth. And yeah, at a certain point, it was very clear that there's no, there's no going back. And that if I can bring this version of myself wherever I go, then I will always be internally at some sort of peace and externally connected to my environment. And again, following the breadcrumbs that are showing up for me. And, and that ultimately leads to me being open to saying yes to, uh, to receiving a new name from a spiritual lineage and, and then pretty quickly embracing that name externally. There was when I first received the name, I was only allowing myself to exist in that way in this very small community. But at a certain point, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I really want to be this integrated, fully expressed whole being. Uh, and so, you know, again, changing my name externally was a huge uh, symbol of, of me giving myself permission to be, be walking this path. Yeah, and, and very quickly, you're, uh, you, I know you mentioned it already, but your name was Jordan. It was named to or changed to Ravi. What does Ravi mean? And why is that name significant to you now? So the full name I was given was uh, Swami Ananda Ravi. Um, Swami being just a prefix for like a male teacher. Um, Ananda means bliss or blissful. And then Ravi in Sanskrit is uh, the sun god one of many sun gods, but like light of the sun. So the name that was given to me was like blissful sun god. And yeah, when I, when I received that, I, again, was just in tears. It was such like a, it felt so sweet and aligned and meaningful that, yeah, I received it wholeheartedly. Well, from here, I would love to dive into the topics that you teed up. And one of them is your book, ready to rise, how to find your path to peace and purpose. And I would actually love to start by hearing you describe a little bit about what it, what you believe your purpose to be. I mean, it's, mm. it's a question I sit with for myself a lot. And for me, it's more of a felt sense type of thing than mm -hmm. uh, one sentence uh, verbal processing. But what, yeah. Yeah, what, like, what sure. comes up for you when you think about your purpose? Yeah, so I, and this, I outlined this in the book, so I think it's worth explaining just a little bit about my approach to purpose. Again, we are so multidimensional, and I think our purpose throughout life shifts. It's so dynamic, as dynamic as we are. Yeah, but I do think there's elements of our purpose and of our existence that are always there. And so when I talk about purpose, I actually break it up into three components. And then I bring those components together to make kind of one statement. And those three components are, first is your soul purpose. That purpose that was expressed when you were a child, pure and innocent, right? Maybe you were from a very young age, very analytical and creative and loved building with Legos and blocks. Or maybe you loved adventuring and playing sports and playing with your you know, siblings or parents. So that soul signature, I think is really, if we can connect that to our purpose, then we, we maintain this innocence and this pureness that was always there. So part one is your soul purpose. 
And mine is really around actually just having fun and adventuring. Like that is so innate to, to me. The second is your karmic purpose. And the karmic purpose is really in this lifetime, what have you experienced karmically that is so uniquely yours, right? And karma is just action. And so often we like label karma as being kind of this negative thing. This was in your karma. And, but maybe it was a, a really challenging or heart-wrenching experience that you had. Maybe the loss of a parent or a loved one or a traumatic injury or some emotional or traumatic abuse. Like what was the thing that you carry karmically that for good or for bad, you had to experience that in this lifetime? Because I believe when we can extract meaning and find the wisdom, why did I have to go through that? Why did I have to endure that? It can be part of our purpose. It doesn't have to be. We don't have to take that burden on necessarily. But if it was something that we've experienced, endured, and we've been healing through, there's likely a lot of wisdom and for the collective. So you have your soul purpose, your karmic purpose, and then your individual purpose. And this is truly in this moment, it's kind of back to that intersection. Where am I personally and professionally? How am I expressing externally as a, a connection to this individual purpose that I'm in right now? And so when I combine all, when I get clear on each of those, because I, I also like to say, you have to name it to claim it, mm. right? I could have a felt sense or like a deep, deep knowing of, all right, I kind of know what my purpose is, but there's something about articulating it with clarity and intention that gives me a little bit more freedom to really hold on to it and say, wow, yeah, this is what I stand for. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm a stand for having fun and going on adventures, while also going through this really deep, deep healing of intergenerational traumas and afflictions so that I can inspire others to have the courage and support to take their own journey inward. Now I feel, I feel so clear. I feel so at ease because there it is, whether I want to claim it or not. Right. So that's the other part. It's like, okay, I said that out loud. I wrote it down. Now the journey is like, okay, what do I want to do with that? And I can reflect like, okay, where am I out of alignment? If I, if I even want to be living on purpose, mm -hmm. now I have my own roadmap that I can start to, to navigate. Could you speak a little bit, if you're willing, to your karmic purpose? Because what's something that comes up for me, there's a quote that I love. I, I believe it's attributed to Josh Waitzkin. And the quote is, your superpower is often located next to your wound. Mm. And for me, uh, that's that was evoked as you described karmic purpose. It, it doesn't have to be a painful experience. but And for me, I, I can gratefully say it's like a super lowercase t series of, of trauma experiences yeah. probably that have contributed to my karmic purpose. And... Yeah, I, I feel that I have the gift of sensitivity and, and seeing other people. And that was something that when I was growing up, I too shared your love for sports as a, an athlete. It, it felt like something that I needed to tuck away or, or something that at best was a slight hindrance to my ability to perform in the world. And it was feedback that I got 
especially as someone who identifies as a male, I, I got lots of feedback that that wasn't, you know, the right, quote unquote, right way to be as a male, that mm-hmm. I, was, I was too gentle. I was too nice. Yeah. I was too kind. People were going to walk all over me when I entered yeah. the real world. I'm going to need to toughen up. And uh, like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't like really beaten into me, but over a, a lifetime of small, really tiny lowercase t traumas, I just internalized that, you know, my way of being wasn't the right way. And I'm slowly but surely realizing that I believe that is my karmic purpose. I, I can really feel the incredible gift that my sensitivity can bring. Mm. I'm wondering what comes up for you. you. You touched a little bit on your sensitivity. What would yeah. you, how would you describe your karmic purpose? Mm. And first, I want to just honor you too for processing out loud around your own I, I absolutely see that your sensitivity is your superpower and that if karmically it wasn't always the easiest thing to embody and own your sensitive nature, but that now in the coaching and supporting and healing work that you do, um, you're absolutely giving people permission to, to love and, and embody and own their own sensitivities. So super cool to see that playing out for you. Yeah, mine. So I, when I talk about it, I, I talk about healing from intergenerational trauma. And I've done a lot of investigation from a place of genuine like inquiry around what happened to each of my parents growing up. What was their dinner table at childhood looked like? And I've learned enough to know what happened. Because both, and this is part of my karmic purpose is that I was born into uh, to two parents who both experience addiction. They are both afflicted and in pain internally and have not stepped onto the healing path, right? So the lack of healing has led to a manifestation of, I'll, I'll call them afflictions, and, but ultimately addictions. And that was, that's been a huge source of pain for me. And you know, even, yeah, both of my parents, again, I love them dearly and have come to appreciate and have a lot of compassion for their own journeys, but consciously feeling is not something that they participate in. In fact, they avoid it at most all costs. And I like to say that consciously feeling is healing. So if my parents are avoiding consciously feeling, they are avoiding healing And so in many ways, their inability to feel um, is likely what caused me to put myself in harm's way from a young age. Um, I've broken over 10 bones in my life. I've had over four uh, major knee surgeries. And yes, some of them were just sport and accident related. I wasn't like consciously trying to hurt myself, but from a very young age, from yeah, when I was three and a half, I wasn't even four years old and I had a broken leg. And so from a very young age, I kind of had to learn to feel and to ask for help and to have compassion for myself and others. Um, and I would continue to do that from the age of like four until 18. When I moved out of the house, I would oftentimes find myself in, in a hospital bed. And then when I moved out of the house, it was less physical harm and more just feeling the weight of these emotional burdens. And so finding myself in 
in therapy or workshops or, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous spaces like that. That again, my, my parents, I love them dearly, but they, they haven't committed to that path of healing. Yeah. Well, thank you for both your reflection and, uh, and your appreciation for me. I, I receive that. And for your willingness to share about your journey, it, it's, uh, it sounds like a very challenging one and to open yourself up to the pain, not only of what happened in your life, but what happened in your parents' life and, and maybe even generations beyond is a lot. It's a, it's a lot to process. And I am quite sure that that makes you a, a really powerful space holder for other people who are showing up in their pain. And it's unfortunate that I think we live in a very highly traumatized world very few people really got what they needed when when they were growing up and for you to take the courageous look under the hood and see you know what what is my pain where is all this coming from is is beautiful and uh, I'm grateful that you shared that with my audience and in your book and um, I'm curious what are maybe some other practices whether they're outlined in your book or not like, I love this line of consciously feeling is healing. Are there other tidbits from your book or practices from your book or otherwise that you would bring into this space right now? Hmm. Yeah. And also back to you. Thank, thank you for listening. The listeners, thank you for, for being here and receiving what, uh, what Mike and I are, go- are going through. Yeah, th- there's so much. And, and I, what I love about the book is that I really did try to put a lot of practical exercises and tools that people can start doing immediately. And it's cool too, because a lot of it connects to what we're learning about some of the modern like neuroscience, and the polyvagal theory around vagus nerve stimulation and vagus vagal tone is that we can consciously, yeah, consciously tone, consciously feel by in some ways getting uncomfortable. So things very simply, like a cold shower, but like a really cold one, um, doing that daily and getting better at that, maybe trying an ice bath. And that's a, you're consciously feeling something uncomfortable, but it has tremendous health benefits. Um, I have a, a humming practice. So um, in yoga, they call it Brahmari breath. In vagal toning, they call it humming. And, but I, there is a, another Osho meditation that involves um, 30 minutes of continuous humming. And again, it's uncomfortable. I, 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 now I love it. In the beginning, after a few minutes of humming, there's a fair amount of resistance that comes up, but what you feel on the other side of it keeps you coming back for more. Sometimes when I brush my teeth, I will do a wall sit for two, three minutes. What that does for me is it brings me into the present moment. I'm more aware of my breath Mm. and my, my being when I'm in that state of discomfort of doing a wall sit. Mm, Yeah. Cold showers, humming, wall sitting. Yeah. Breath work, yoga, like all of it, really so much of it is, is choosing to be in the body and to be consciously putting the body into areas of discomfort and then staying there. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite, I don't know, maybe a YouTube video that someone who hasn't done breath work should start with 
or do, do you have favorite meditation teachers? I, I would love to give people some things that I can just link right in the show notes. They can click on it and, and get started. Yeah, for sure. And I'd like to be holding that space. I'd like to be creating more of that type of content. And so I appreciate that this is where we went because this is really what I'm committed to also is holding that, that space and that vibration. But I, I also got my start. You know, Wim, Wim Hof has amazing. He's like... 11 minute intro tutorial to Wim Hof breathing is phenomenal. The app that you can download, the Wim Hof app, also just so accessible to be able to get into those states of discomfort with guidance. There's a woman named Cassandra with a K. She has a yoga with Cassandra on YouTube. Um, she's prolific and has such quality content. Um, and for a lot of us, especially men, who are very much in their, their doing and they're going and their sympathetic nervous system overdrive, getting into a yin yoga posture and holding it, being there with it uh, is tremendously uncomfortable, but incredibly healing on the other side. So I'll plug those two and then myself for uh, creating more. This is a good way to keep myself accountable to creating that content. Yeah. Awesome. Polyvagal theory is something that I have very, at a very high level, I've been really interested in. And I know Deb Dana is one of the, the pioneers and Stephen Porges. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if, if that's something that you outlined in the book. Could you at a high level explain what polyvagal theory is or how you would describe, I guess, regulation of the nervous system and what's happening in the nervous system? Yes, my favorite topic truly it's it's something that again we did not learn this stuff growing up our caregivers our parents our teachers coaches not in not i would call this being trauma informed because in many ways our traumatic responses are really our nervous system responses and yeah the people you mentioned dr stephen porges and his assistant and co-author in many ways deb dana are both incredible resources they do have a lot of content on YouTube and on their websites. But essentially, your nervous system, my nervous system, is always trying to find balance and homeostasis, right? And this can very tangibly look like if I'm too hot, I'm looking to cool down. If I'm thirsty, I look to quench my thirst. What It gets tricky when it's feeling overwhelmed, when it's feeling uncomfortable. And if it doesn't have the capacity because oftentimes when our nervous system is in a heightened state of, of threat or fear, there are certain parts of our brain and our body that go offline so that we can stay safe. And, and so sometimes we lose our faculties of cognition, our prefrontal cortex goes offline because everything needs to go into more of a, a fight or flight mode, right? A lot of people have heard fight or flight. And so when we are aware of what's happening, we are aware of this, the symptoms and the signals coming from the body. Now we have just a little bit more control, right? So if I'm talking with my partner and the talking becomes an argument and all of a sudden I'm sweating and I can't think straight, if I have a little bit of awareness, a little bit of trauma awareness, I can identify that and I can say, hey, I'm actually, I can feel that I'm in like this fight response. I'm not thinking clearly and I need to go get some fresh air, drink some water, maybe release in some healthy way. 
so that I can come back to homeostasis and come back to a place where my parasympathetic nervous system, that friendly and free, rest and digest, relax and restore. Like if I know how to get back into that state consciously, then some of my unconscious habits, like smoking or drinking, or masturbating, like these things that we grab for because we don't know what to do with these sensations. Now I have a lot more power to come back to the present moment, to show up for my life in a more like aligned and safe and healthy way. And so those are the two main nervous system states that we oscillate between this parasympathetic where I'm like, my heart rate is normal. My body temperature is regulated. I'm talking at a pace that you can receive. Um, so that's parasympathetic. And then the opposite of that, or the other side of that is the sympathetic where I'm like in overdrive and my heart rate is beating faster and my breath is shallow and in my chest and my thoughts are racing and I'm talking too fast and I can't even regulate or take in what's happening with you, even though I'm in a conversation with you and I'm just spouting at you because I'm not regulated. And so one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our partners, our communities, our family, anything, anybody around us is being regulated so that we can be a source of co-regulation for another being. And if we are not regulated and we can't co-regulate with another regulated person, then there are other things that we can turn to. Nature, nature is one of the best co-regulators. Uh, pets, having a cat or an animal, a dog, really amazing way to, to co-regulate if we don't have another human being that's co that's a source of co-regulation. And again, I, I get very excited. I could go and talk about this for a long time, but I think understanding your nervous system and we're all wired differently. So it's super important to know how I am wired as an individual. But when I have that awareness, I unlock a lot of keys to how I operate, how I regulate, and ultimately how I can just exist in a, in a more content way. I would love to explore just a couple of different examples of how we are wired because one of the stories that I make up uh, about the way that we are all conditioned, we'll, we'll stick with America, like the collectively in a Western society like America, is that there is like a quote unquote right nervous system to have or like a there's a, a moral way that we're supposed to respond to things instead of just being with our experience of what really is true for us. And so if I'm speaking a little too abstractly, I'll, I'll say specifically for me as someone who's sensitive, I, in relation to my nervous system, I used to have very harsh criticisms of the fact that I was say terrified of approaching a stranger or public speaking or exposing myself to something new. Uh, I had tagged that as something that was a fundamental flaw about myself. And what I now have come to understand is that's just a part of the way that I'm wired. That's just, that's how my nervous system works. It takes me a little bit of time to get used to a new environment. And then once I'm adapted to the environment, I can be a fucking beast <laughs> uh, to put it in non-scientific terms. So, so I, I would love to hear like, what are 
in your exploration of the nervous system, are there specific, I know we're painting with very general and broad strokes maybe, but are, are there specific ways that, or patterns that you have noticed about people's nervous systems that could be helpful? Yes, you, you hit the nail on the head in many ways. And I would love to see the environment where you come alive as a fucking beast. <laughs> um, and in many ways, even when you're here on, on a call like this, it's safe, you're, we're regulated, and so there is an aliveness and a, you, you are beasting this interview because you are so fully present and there for it. And so also worth knowing about our nervous system is a concept called neuroception. And neuroception is what's happening unconsciously. We are always scanning our environment for safety and threat, right? So when I'm walking down the street and I see a stranger approaching, my neuroceptive thoughts are like, Ooh, safety or danger, friend or foe, like attractive or ugly. Like we're doing that automatically. And so again, as we start to understand our own sensitivities, that can help inform so much about our lives, right? So even in, at the end of this day, I'm putting out a lot of energy. And so I might be energetically and physically a bit drained, right? But I do want, to, I wanna to go to an in-person event tonight, but knowing the state that I'm in and knowing the environment I'm about to enter into now I can start to have like boundaries for myself, right? And a lot of this comes back to also to our attachment styles. It's not that secure attachment is right or parasympathetic nervous system is right. It's just that those expressions and habits and ways of being, they tend to lean towards just what we've labeled as healthier ways of being. And so again, it's just important to know where are you on the spectrum? Where are you headed? And yeah, what are some tools, communication styles? Some, what, are, what do you have in your toolbox to best support your nervous system? And so I could even, again, going to an event today, I could tell my partner in advance, like, hey, I'm, I really wanna go to this, but I'm feeling like I've already put a lot out today. My nervous system is actually a little bit, I'm a little bit down-regulated. I'm a bit, not depressed, but I'm like, I'm, a little bit low. My tank is not empty, but it's low. And so I could say, hey, can you help me just, um, I just want to be there tonight as a participant. I don't want to have to get up and speak. I don't want to talk to so many people. So in the moments where I can't have the boundary to say no to something, could you help just be a sounding board for me? Mm. And again, I'm, that's me projecting onto my nervous system hours in the future because I have a little bit of awareness about where I'm at now and what might overstimulate me in the future. And so now I can enroll my partner to be an ally. And I, again, my potentially, uh, my potentially at risk nervous system has more support. There's something so powerful in the, the simple request. I, I'm hearing two things really about what you just named. There's a self-awareness component. So knowing energetically what, what happened during my day, where, where am I likely to land based on my experience uh, at the end of this day? Uh, where am I in terms of how full is my tank? What's my level of resilience? How resourced am I? There's so many ways that we can ask this question. And, and then just having the courage to name that. Once the awareness is there to say, hey, this is where I'm at 
right now and this is what support would look like for me the clarity of that is i am just it's something that i'm still really beginning stages of mastering as a skill but it is profoundly transformational to just be able to say that i mean i you can feel like in moments that i name that my my nervous system goes like thank you for seeing me right there's like a sigh of relief in the body and then there's connection that's actually forged between you and your partner because whether or not your partner is picking up on it or whoever you're talking to like with neuroception whether or not they're conscious of it there's something being signaled to them of like ooh i feel he or she trusts me enough to say that like i feel safer with you now yeah. and uh it's really just like this this beautiful back and forth can can happen instead of the the typical or i'll say typical way that we do it is is the opposite we yeah. we come from a place of i'm not going to get what i need so i need to crowd out the other person and and uh it, and then it becomes a negative back and forth so for sure and yes and i want to just touch on briefly on what I would say many Americans experience, myself included from time to time, is the people-pleasing or the fawn response, right? That's where we are essentially overriding what we know to be true to be accepted or to please another, right? So if we go to this event tonight and it's there's actually like really loud music there and I'm not doing well on the inside, this is not what my nervous system needed, in a people-pleasing response, my partner might be having a great time. She looks over at me like, yeah, this music is great. And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, this is great. <laughs> when truly what's happening inside is the opposite. Uh, raise my hand big time. There's so many ways in which I might override, for, for example, by having a few drinks, right? It's like, okay, once if I have like four drinks, then I know that I, I will be, I'll be fun. I'll be pleasant to be around. Mm -hmm. And that is the more, it's the, I don't know, safer is in the short run, it feels safer, but it, in the long run, it is significantly costly. It, it's, uh, you're not really listening to yourself. And I am so guilty of that still. And I think we all are, but yeah, I actually, I just went on a, a family vacation a couple of weeks ago with my family. And historically, I've always had two or three or more drinks every single night on vacation because that symbolizes resting and connecting and there's like more laughter and it just feels like I'm uh, more immersed in the experience with my family. And I had one drink this this past vacation and I went into it very apprehensively but I just had I felt so much more available to whatever was happening on the, the trip and not playing catch up the next morning and like doing more Wim Hof breathing and more meditation and going in the sauna for a longer time it was like I was able to do all those things from a strong foundation and the reason I'm saying this isn't to like brag about how amazing I am <laughs> it's that if if you feel like you don't want to drink at the next event that you go to I can I can speak to the power of doing that and I, I just want to underline how just owning where you are instead of trying to override it to look good is a really powerful experience for sure and I, I'd say that's one of the 
most challenging parts about just being a social person in America, period. I think one of the gifts of, I was living on an island in Thailand 15 months um, and there is not much alcohol there. Um, the community that I associate with, um, yeah, it's just, it's just not a part of, of that existence. And I'm so grateful for that because I can show up dead sober and I know that I will not be met with much temptation. And I do, I, you know, over the course of about a year and a half, I had like five drinks. And then within two weeks of being back on U.S. soil, I had those same five drinks. Um, and you are, you're tested every time you go out, out for dinner, go to meet at a bar, a social event, like that temptation will, will be there. And again, this is a whole nother tangent, but I truly believe that navigating or overcoming addiction is so closely related to understanding the wiring of your own nervous system. Because I've been, I have absolutely been addicted and afflicted in ways that my, my parents are. And I can see how that's the intergenerational cycle that perpetuates because it is wired into the nervous system. I know when I'm sitting at a poker table and I look down and I see good cards and my heart is racing and my palms are sweating, it's not just because I have good cards. It is my nervous system totally responding. And it's a bit of a high. It's, it's a hit. I'm feeling, I'm feeling intensely. And for me, it's been a really cool journey to just be able to zoom out a little bit, just enough to be able to see what's happening in my nervous system. And then to make a decision from that place of whether I want to keep going down that path or if I'm going to consciously choose to feel in a different way. Well, this is something we've been dancing around a little bit, but one of the ways in which we don't get in touch with our nervous system is around distractions, which are a plenty in our culture. And I would love to hear you. I don't know if this was specifically discussed in the book, but I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about what what's the cost of living in such a distracted society where we don't check in with ourselves enough and yeah i would love to hear a little bit about that from you i'll relate this to my process of writing the book because in many ways sitting down and writing a book is so challenging because of how many distractions there are and one thing that I was really grateful, I had a coach who supported me in the stages of writing the book. And she talks about something called the writer frequency scale. And so in any moment, especially in a week where maybe I have some personal deadlines around writing a full chapter or more, I need to be making sure that I'm in a writing frequency. And as I navigate my day, I can start to get really clear and conscious of what are the things that are taking me out of that frequency, right? I know that for me, I write best in the morning. I know that for me, I write best after I've moved my body. I need to go swimming or do yoga or take the dog for a rigorous walk. Like I need to move some energy before there's that clarity and stillness um, for me mentally to be able to write well and at a frequency that I want to be pouring onto the pages. And so what was always interesting is that once I was really committed to the book process, everything about my day was either taking me closer to that frequency that I wanted to be writing it, 
or taking me away from it. And then that was the choice that I make. Like, okay, I'm not writing today. It's already the afternoon. I haven't moved my body. I just stuffed my face with a late lunch. Uh, and yeah, I just don't have capacity to sit down and write. I'm too, yeah, I'm too distracted. I've chosen that, that path of distraction. When we're more unconscious than conscious of it, the distractions will continue to show up. And so it's hard to carve out time in life to commit to a creative project or to really be there to connect with a loved one or even an animal, right? I've been, even today, today's my book launch and I've been mostly on my phone and computer really just putting out energy and responding to what's showing up. And my dog is coming over, like barking at me, like, hey, what about me? Take me out, like, let's play, let's do something. And so that's, that's the cost is that if you're not managing your distractions, then you're likely not carving out the time to create the things that you want to exist in your world. You know, and even creativity, there's so many layers energetically within us that we, we don't need to shed, but when we shed those burdens, there's an opening to the creative process. And then on top of that, actually seeing it through, is a whole nother spiritual practice of navigating distractions and all the other things that are showing up to take you away from that vibration. It reminds me of, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Cal Newport's book, Deep Work around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially for if, if you're trying to do something that's challenging, like writing or some sort of problem that requires hours of effort consistently on end it's i found that to be a really powerful book in eliminating all of the ways that we are typically distracted such as instagram linkedin text messages emails uh, very socially accepted as a matter of fact i mean the opposite being unavailable for even an hour on text message a lot of times is going to be met with some sort of wrath of like where were you? What, I, I called you an hour ago. I tested you an hour ago. And uh, it takes a lot of courage to put down the distractions because I think another thing that certainly happens with me sometimes is it's we're the, the uncomfortable feeling of, ooh, I don't, I don't know what I want to write. And then you want, you want to reach for food or you want to open your email. There's like that quick dopamine hit of, oh, there's, there's going to be someone who reached out to me. I definitely have to check mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, a, a lot of the stuff that we've spoken about in this podcast already, it helps build the, the muscle of, I actually don't need that. I'm okay being uncomfortable because I know the other side of that is real liberation and freedom. A thousand percent. And, and again, I'm not a saint. I, I continue to learn through experience. Even there was one, one short story. I, I gave myself the gift of like a three-day writing retreat and I, yeah, I went and I rented a, a room at a, a small resort near where I was living, but I did. I gave myself that gift of space. It wasn't a boundary in that I was saying no to all the other things. It was just, I was just needed to say yes to myself fully for a few days. And my partner was super supportive of that, which was amazing. Um, and I packed enough food and snacks to support myself for those three days so that I didn't have to like really leave unless I really wanted or needed to. And it was so interesting because, yeah, when I was sitting there and like, okay, I finally gave myself the gift of time and space to sit 
and focus and do deep, deep work, I still had all these distractions that I needed for myself to go through. And I, I literally ate three quarters of the snacks and things that I had for three days before I could sit and write. Right? I need, I watched a two and a half hour talk with Wayne Dwyer, uh, Wayne Dyer <laughs> to inspire myself. But ultimately I was procrastinating from doing deep work. And so again, even in those moments where we have the creative capacity, it was so interesting just to observe. And I was, I was watching myself do it. I'm like, well, I could have just one Oreo or I could eat the entire sleeve right now. And, and I was, I was doing those things to like maybe sabotage myself. Like maybe I finally, what would it be like if I actually gave myself the space to write freely and openly? And so I did, I went through a journey of about a day and a half, of like really struggling to, to get centered and focused. But then I still fortunately had a couple of days of, of deep work. I, we're unfortunately running a little bit low on time, but I'm, I'm finding myself, you can answer either one of these questions. Is there anything else about your book that you would like to bring into the conversation that we haven't spoken about? And, or this other question is a little bit more involved. I would love to hear a little bit about your relationship with ease and flow versus there's a way in which like sometimes when we're doing something hard, I find it more helpful to just be like, I don't know, I'm going to feel good after this. Like, let's just grind it out. Mm. And I would love to hear your relationship between the, the dance of those two things, whichever mm. question feels more alive for you. I, I'll, I'll answer both because I do want to touch on just high level of the book. I'll be conscious of time. Um, and ease and flow is something that yeah, speaks right to my, the core of my being. Ease and flow was actually my intention for the day today. And because there's so much happening, right? All this energy is going out. There are definitely things like I sent over a hundred personal messages to people with uh, a hello and a link to my book. And like, that could be like the thing that I need to put my nose to the grindstone and just do. But also this quality for me, ease and flow is more of a, it's an essence. It's a quality. Right. I can do hard things and still be in a state of ease and flow. Uh, you know, even actually for me today, I gave myself a lot of structure. My day is very full. I had it all on the calendar and that gives me ease and flow because now I know what's happening otherwise. And even last night I was feeling so overwhelmed. Again, I went to my partner. I said, Hey, I'm really experiencing overwhelm right now. Can you help me sort through this? And I made a list of the 25 things that I, needed to do last night and today but also when i shift to like okay i need to do them yes but also i get to do them here i can block them out so that they are more accessible to me in those times where my nervous system is heightened and i actually don't have the full capacity to be so organized and so for me ease and flow can look like over scheduling myself so that i can have freedom in that flow knowing and easily moving from one thing to the next. And I haven't thought about this, but right now, this weekend, I will give myself a full day of nothing scheduled. And then taking that quality of ease and flow to either doing all the things based on what's showing up, or maybe I can just eat, be truly easy and, and in a state of nothingness. And that'll be really liberating. So yeah, thank you for, for touching on one of my favorite topics. And, I'll, I'll kind of start to wrap up by just speaking 
briefly to the book and it being this you know path to how to find your path to peace and purpose like i've said a number of times your never nervous system is wired differently than mine your path to peace and purpose your expression of soul soul purpose and alignment and intuition is so much different than mine and so what i love about the way that i wrote the book is that it's really it's an invitation for you to take this journey into your own inner inquiry and exploration sure i share stories of mine and i give practices that have worked for me but i'm also i'm so curious what works for you and for the people that are reading the book and it is my vision and hope that this creates a sort of community of people that are really committed to their inner journey and that we can start to level up even more and rise even more when we're sharing resources and stories and the things that we've held shame or guilt around. Because as you know, and as Brene Brown knows, and people who are hopefully listening to this podcast is that you know, vulnerability is the true path to connection and to intimacy. And I find a lot of meaning in that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I just have a couple of more questions for you, Ravi, and, and then hopefully you can get outside and walk your dog. <laughs> what is an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Ordinary moment that brings me great joy is, uh, is cooking a, a colorful breakfast for my partner and I, and just sitting down and, and having a moment to, to share a meal. What is something that people would be surprised to learn about you? So many things. I think that touches on to that, like, wow, I'm so much more multidimensional than I give myself credit for. But people might be surprised to learn that I don't play a musical instrument. <laughs> I am surprised to learn that. <laughs> Where do you feel the most unfinished in your life? And I know that if I was asked this question, I, I could probably go on for about 30 to 40 hours, but what well, do you feel the, the most unfinished in your life? Ooh, I love that. Uh, what first came to, not even my mind, but to my, my gut is my financial health. I think there's a lot of unfinished business for me around uh, personal finances. Yes. Well, same here. That's, that's one of the things I'll, I would talk about in my 30 to 40 hours. Well, I'm going to link to everything that we spoke about in the show notes, uh, including your book, again, Ready to Rise, How to Find Your Path to Peace and Purpose. Where else would you invite people to connect with you? I know that you're pretty active on Instagram website. So where would you invite folks to connect with you? Those places, exactly. Yeah, at uh, at Rise with Ravi on Instagram, my website, risewithravi.com, uh, Amazon, check out the book, Ready to Rise. This whole rising theme is, it is, it's really core to my, my purpose right now. Um, even my name, Ravi, translating to the sun, and what does the sun do every day? It rises. And so there's, for me, a lot of, a lot of meaning in, in all this rising business. Yeah. Well, and speaking of meaning, another place that I think you knew that the interview was going, the conclusion and the beginning are very consistent with me. And so I would love to hear, Ravi, the final question of the interview. What does it mean to you to live a meaningful life in this moment? Beautiful. For me, meaning is, it's everywhere. It's 
slowing down enough to really be present to the connections, the synchronicities, the signs and symbols. I love to draw meaning out of the minute. And so, yeah, for me, it's really giving myself uh, the gifts of all the tools that I have so that I can be in a frequency to derive meaning out of, out of the minutia. I love that. I did a walking meditation the other day. I think it was yesterday, actually, mm-hmm. where I just was walking outside. And part of it was to just notice, like really feel the sound of the breeze and the trees moving and to notice the different shades of green on the leaves and to notice the texture of the bark. And I know that I am really dialed in and making incredible meaning if I can tune into things like that. And also conversely, like not turn away from the moments where I'm in pain or that I'm not okay. And I think there's incredible meaning to be had with I, I love the, the minute and the mundane and fi- finding beauty in those types of moments is to me, I, that's kind of my edge around meaning these days, instead of it being about living this like epic life of adventure. I think those are beautiful too, but there is something to be said about appreciating the beauty in the mundane. So I, I love yeah. that you brought the interview to a conclusion there. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to name again, I, I really appreciate that I have been a, a part of your book launch journey and uh, you're, you're up to great things with this. I, I loved diving deep, especially around the nervous system. Folks are going to get a lot out of listening to this conversation. I, I really encourage them to take a look at the book and to all the listeners, I hope that you have a great rest of your day, evening, whatever time of day you're listening. And I wish you a life of peace and purpose and take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.